welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Today on the show, I have Brian Laundry of brianlaundry.ca. Brian's a well-known insurance expert in Canada, and I brought him on the show specifically to talk about business owners and disability planning and what they can do to protect themselves in case of disability. And with that, here's my interview with Brian. Brian, thanks for taking the time today. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So Brian Laundry, tell us about what it is you do. Well, for a better part of 18 years, I've been uh, very fortunate to have been involved with more uh, high-end affluent planning. I started the first eight years of my career working exclusively with physicians. So uh, by working with only in physicians, I um, was able to really understand the, the need for disability insurance, more advanced planning and tax. For the past seven years, I've owned my own business, and where I focus is as an insurance-only expert. I work with accounting firms, other uh, investment advisors, financial advisors, and uh, I essentially stay in my own lane. I focus on more strategic planning. I do like talking a lot about tax, and my primary focus is insurance. So basically, I brought you on to talk about protecting a business owner's health, because just to give you some statistics on what I've seen, you feel free to jump in with some of this other stuff. The reality is, especially for a business owner early on, they typically do not have a safety net unless they create one. They basically, if they do not have coverage and they become disabled, if that disability lasts any length of time that's substantial, it could financially devastate them. And especially the younger you are, the more your wealth is tied up in what's known as human capital. So the amount of money that you're going to make over the rest of your working life, that is probably the single largest asset you have. By the time you retire, your human capital hits zero because you're not going to be working anymore. But we need to, a lot of people think about protecting the assets in their life, about protecting the biggest asset in their life, which is oftentimes their ability to earn money. And some basic statistics on that, roughly one in three Canadians will see a period of disability during their lives. And even in white collar jobs, because people often think that has to do with heavy lifting and things that involve physical labor, it's still close to one in four. So very substantial risk. So Brian, let's talk about, there's two different types of policies that really help with health related issues. The first one, the big one is disability insurance. So talk to me about what it is disability insurance does. Yeah, and actually I'll, I'll expand that to three with long-term disability insurance, critical illness insurance being the most prevalent and most common. One most often misforgotten or, or I guess forgotten would be long-term care insurance, a very popular. Yeah. South very true. So long-term disability insurance essentially protects your ability to earn an income. I think you raise a really good point in this podcast because anybody who's had a lot of experience working with business owners, we've been kind of trained to ask for the shareholders agreement. Let me mm -hmm. see your shareholders agreement. Do you have a shareholders agreement? And we won't spend much time talking about that, but in the instances where there is a shareholders agreement, which seems to be very infrequent, when you do read it, it's very, very easy for an insurance expert to say, hey, if you die, what happens? And as you laid out, statistically speaking, there's a higher likelihood of not dying. So having the long-term disability insurance conversation is vital. As you said, most business owners, they may not be the best investment clients for an advisor like yourself because all of their money is tied up in their net worth and their business. Mm -hmm. and they might not have a lot of liquid assets or savings. So long-term disability insurance provides us an opportunity to ensure their income. Critical illness insurance is a bit different where it pays a lump sum. Similar to life insurance, you pick a term, a duration of cost, an amount of coverage, and that money is paid to the, uh, the owner tax-free for whatever purpose they see fit. Where long-term care insurance has an interesting angle now 
is in Canada, many of the insurance companies have pulled out of that space. Mm-hmm. So there are very few insurance companies offer long-term care where, where it pays if you're unable to perform two of the six activities of daily living. So you've got your dressing, bathing, toileting, eating, transferring limbs, and cognitive impairment. So what's really nice is there's some companies out there who build those definitions into their critical illness policies. My only concern with that is, is that when we look at the average size of a critical illness policy that's sold in Canada, it's small. It's like sub 100,000 still, I think. And when you look at how, how much money is required to properly cover someone for long-term care, it is orders of magnitude greater than that. So it's good that it's there, but it shouldn't lull us into a false sense of security. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the, the more telling problem is the lack of ability for an advisor to position the right amount of critical illness insurance. So if you want to back into the real problem, I think the real problem is as an advisor, if you speak at a conference like I do and people ask you, how do you arrive to a critical illness amount? We get these these very interesting ways of doing it. Multiple income, insure your debts, insure uh, an emergency fund, whatever it might be, okay? Yeah. And I think what we really need to do is look at the numbers and say, what infusion of money provides the most protection for your family? There's also one other point here, and I don't like fear tactic selling or and even anecdotes can get old, but I can speak to myself. I mean, I've had two unexpected back operations the past five years. Hmm. And in, in neither one of those situations would I have claimed on my long-term disability because I had surgery before that. But you know, I'll tell you, for a person who can't get long-term disability insurance anymore, long-term hmm. care is a wonderful alternative B2V critical illness coverages. So yeah, because if it's permanent, then it's basically, it's immobilizing you, then it could pay you at a very early age compared to what's normally going to pay, which is in your 70s. Right. So I guess when I look at living benefits for business owners, I acknowledge there's a need for risk. I think everybody can say, we, we understand there's a risk component to this. And you did touch uh-huh. on human capital. I think there's also a strategic element to it because these things have to be fit into the plan. And I often find when I start talking about insurance in particular, especially for those who are very astute investors, you almost need to position the insurance as a hedge. You know, it's a hedge fund. It's a hedge investment. You need to change the vernacular from insurance to something that they recognize is a hedge on their net worth development. And it's been very valuable for me because it's, it's a psychological game, this business, because it's not about saying the word insurance, because as they say, it's, it's, it's sold, not bought, but it's not positioned correctly. No, it's not. So we, we, that was a lot to unpack. So let's, let's, let's kind of take this one step at a time. And actually, let's start with critical ones because it's the easier one to understand. And frankly, it's the one that pays faster if you become, if something happens to you. Yeah. So critical loss insurance, tell me about what it is and how much it pays. And we can talk about different methods for figuring out how much is enough. Okay. So really simply, the, the biggest conditions you'll hear about are cancer, heart attack, and stroke. Often the coverage is covered 25 conditions, deafness, blindness, motor neuron disease, Transferring limbs, or sorry, not transferring limbs, uh, organ <laughs> If only, right? <laughs> sorry, we can't, we can't cover my, I, I, That'd be an interesting pitch to throw, right arm from the left side. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> no, but, you know, to raise the point, if you get diagnosed with these things, and most Canadians have family and friends and stories and anecdotes about those happening, that money gets paid tax-free for whatever purpose you see fit. So it is the one that seems to be the easier one to sell, if you want to use that word. When it comes to arriving to amounts, you're right. The coverage amount is relatively low because often the insurance positioning is based on affordability. And I don't want to scare the client off with the premium number. So if in my experience, you see a lot of agents will say, look, you need a million dollars of 20 year term life insurance, which is an easy decision. Hey, let's slap on some critical illness. Looks like you can afford 50,000. Let's go ahead and do that. Yeah. And in fairness, here's the thing. I think you hit upon it. I think that there are 
methodologies for how we come to the other amounts of the, to the amounts of other insurance very straightforward that are very straightforward. So for example, life insurance, you can do a needs analysis as to what's the financial impact if you die today, or you can do an analysis as to what's the you know estate liability if you die down the road. Those are easier tangible numbers. Disability, right? Like the reality is unless you've amassed the wealth, you pretty much need to protect as much as you can, pretty much, or at least enough to maintain your lifestyle into retirement. And then, you know, long-term care, there's benchmarks for how much things cost. With critical illness, when you get sick, how much is enough? Well, good question. It depends on like, on like how long you're going to be sick. You know, is it going to trigger disability? You know, what are the ongoing care costs? Are you going to wait around here for treatment? Are you going to go somewhere else like the U.S.? Like it is, you know, how long is a piece of string on this one? Well, it's actually, it's, it's interesting if you think about it, because when you look at long-term disability, critical illness, and long-term care next to each other, and there are finite premium dollars, and we all know they all pay at different junctures. So the answer to the question of what to buy and how much comes down to tell me what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. What conditions are you going to be uh, dealt yeah. with? The reality is if you, if you have a heart attack, you likely won't claim on your long-term disability or your long-term care because you won't satisfy so, the waiting period. But you'll get for the record, that was my very first claim. A forty-year-old yep. with a with a freak heart attack, like not even the case that you would like healthy and fit as a fiddle, some sort of blood clot, heart attack, got paid, never saw a penny from his disability because he missed about a week of work. Well, in the one I had, my first one was a doctor at my old firm, four hundred thousand dollar claim, uh, two different companies. And uh, his name was Karam, Dr. Karam. And mm-hmm. that's not his last name, obviously. But Karam called me, said, I had a heart attack. And I said, geez, are you okay? He goes, yeah, you know, I've lost 15 pounds. I bought a, tr- I want to buy a truck and I'm eating better and my life is better. Whew, what a great thing that happened. And so it's it's a really bizarre claim story, but that's what a heart attack could be. But you change the, the narrative a bit. Well, what if, what if you have a severe car accident or a back injury like mine? Well, you know, unless I'm paralyzed or lose access to my, my limbs, I might not be claiming on the critical insurance. I, I would be claiming long-term yep. disability or long-term care. And the worst case scenario is, as you alluded to, the gentleman had a, a blood clot in his heart, which caused a heart attack. Well, a blood clot in your brain is a stroke. Oh, yeah. Or in so your heart, it's a pulmonary embolism. It can be any number of things, right? You can lose so, a limb. So you, the job that we have is to educate about the risks and then pull it back and say, okay, we now need to be strategic about the premium dollars and what's most important. And the reality is, Long-term disability, in my opinion, is the most important. Nothing yep. happens without an income. So for critical illness insurance, like here's, here's another little thing. When you do retirement modeling, you can simulate a critical illness. Okay, So if you essentially took a baseline retirement model, and if somebody was now uh, on long-term disability and they were able to live on that, that's the presumption, right? Make that assumption. Yep. And now what you do is you go into your software and you say, well, now they can't save. And you put zero everywhere. Well, what's going to happen is that fully funded retirement plan will likely have a lot of red in it, right? You're going to have some shortfalls. So what you could do is present value that shortfall. And there's what we need in today's dollars using a certain rate of return assumption to infuse into the plan to make you whole again. It's a mathematical way of doing it. But again, yep. it also assumes the advisors involved is doing retirement model, which yeah, is a, a full plan, plan, which is a minority of us, right? Well, right. So yeah, it's tough. One last thought on criticalness and and the need. When you're speaking to young couples in particular, if you took that methodology, the numbers that they're going to need for critical illness are huge. They'll need 700,000 or 800,000 because they have no savings. So our job is to do the math, but it's also my job to say, we're not insuring you for 700,000. You you can't insure the entire risk, but you need to understand where things fit. 
Yeah, and it's funny, in my process, we literally go through every form of insurance uh, known to man just, just to educate them. And one of the first things I say is that, look, you're probably going to have some need for a lot of these things, but we're going to focus on where the dollars should be spent because, quite frankly, you shouldn't have to take a second job to afford all the insurance in your life, right? That's that's the reality. So we're going to have to accept some risk. Now, I agree with you. The planning methodology for determining how much CI is necessary is far better than any kind of rule of thumb. The alternative that, but it, it is a heavy lifting one. The alternative shortcut that I've, I've been planning on writing an article on, and I will at some point do this, is what I call almost the option preference model. So we look at the things that what people would use critical ones to cover, right? And then kind of put a benchmark on each of them, right? So for example, disability is not going to pay you for 30, 39, sorry, for 90 to 120 days, right? So Basically, maybe you should have enough to cover that off. Replenish an emergency fund. Are you the kind of person who would pick up stakes and move to, and go go to the Mayo Clinic, right? What does it cost for something like that? Like, look at all the different things that people would do with, with critical illness and have a conversation. If you got sick, what is the realistic need to cover off these preferences, right? It's not as good as the planning model, but for someone, you know, the reality is most advisors aren't even doing a needs analysis. This is a good concept for a needs analysis beyond the current ones we see, which are kind of silly, right? Because I mean, don't get me wrong. It would be kind of nice if my mortgage got paid off if I had a heart attack, but if I'm like that 40 year old who went back to work a week later and had very little, very little long-term impact from that, that was a lot of premium to pay right now. It worked out for him, but at the same time, it's not necessarily going to work out for anyone, but you know, to be cleared and to sum it up before we move off of CI critical illness, essentially you get sick by a list of covered conditions. And by the way, cancer is like 66% of all these conditions. A lot. Yeah. Let's be clear, life-threatening. If you get a tiny form, like what was it? Was it if you get like melanoma, like early stage, or or like T1, T, uh, T2, whatever, the first two levels of prostate cancer, if your probability of survival is 99.9% from that form of cancer, you'll get some sort of small benefit. You won't get the whole thing. Or you yeah. might not get, you know, again, it's not meant to, oh no, this is the, the cancer version of a cold, for lack of a better term. Well, yeah, I think that's meant for things that impact. The, the one that people might recognize the words a bit more of is an angioplasty. In angioplasty, yep. you get to your doctor and they stop the heart attack by fixing it. So yep. that's an early intervention benefit. It pays a small amount. Your contract continues. And guess what? You're fine now. So it's it's you're right. There's yep. there's some early intervention benefits there. Yeah, and there are some definition ambiguities around this stuff. Like some people get a little bit there's there's one company on the market specifically who says like Look, people hear the word cancer. We don't care what form it is or if they're guaranteed 100% survival rate. They hear cancer, they expect to get paid. So we pay them something. But at the same time, it also comes down to cost benefit, right? So that's that's critical. It's very simple. I get sick. I survive 30 days. I basically have money. And interestingly enough, this was conceived by a doctor in South Africa who discovered that people were losing life savings over illness, not their lives. Now, we probably have better social health care here, so you're not losing life savings, but it can be financially detrimental. Well, and a lot far of more companies have now uh, eliminated that 30-day waiting period. So there's- Oh, really? I wasn't aware of that. There's been a lot of progress in this. I think uh, I'm not going to get into me- medical diagnosis and better statistical studies, but a lot of people out there, you know, the 30 days isn't really a requirement for all companies anymore. Well, let's also talk about why that is, right? So I think that 30 days was there in part because essentially like this was meant to pay you if you lived, not if you died. If you died, you had life insurance. The other interesting point we should make make sure people know is on underwriting. So if you basically, once this thing is placed, basically you are not covered for cancer for the first 90 days, is it? Is that correct? Or is it the it third? It's, it's something like that, yeah. There's yeah. something, right? And, and the reason is because there's no test in the world that proves that you're completely absolved of cancer, right? Like, you know, you can have one free floating cell, right? But the reality is, is that as long as you didn't know that you did this while you had it, like when you applied, odds are you'd be perfectly fine and covered. So that's the uh, critical portion. Let's move on to disability, because as we said, this is the bigger one, right? And it's not infeasible to think that somebody 
even getting out of university, applying normal wage increases and what they would make between the time they get out of university to the time they retire, call it 65, then we're talking about lifetime earnings exceeding multiple millions of dollars, right? Yeah. To lose that, and people don't see that, right? They see the, the, the today's paycheck. But when you look at that entire lifetime worth of money, to lose that, it's not dying is one thing, right? You're gone, you, your expenses stop. Disability is something else. Your bills still keep coming. So how does disability insurance protect for that? Well, I think the, the mindset I would have is think of your 30-year-old couple, you know, a single income family, maybe young children. And yep. if that primary income earner goes down and there's no mechanism to earn money, you can start using your savings and sell your home. And I can prove you're out of money in five years or, or less. Yep. Having that paycheck is vital. So when you claim on a long-term disability policy, as you said before, there's a waiting period. You've got, usually it's yep. nine days and sometimes you can pay some more money and get it sooner. But when you have a monthly non-taxable benefit in your bank account that's indexed with inflation, if you get the cost of living adjustment rider, which I would highly recommend to anybody who's young, it's a no-brainer. And when you lock in your costs at such a young age, I think it's really important to... to and your health for that matter, right? Like you're, you're getting it when you can. Talking to a guy, I can't get it anymore. I've had two yeah. knee surgeries, two shoulder surgeries, two back surgeries. Nobody's insuring this guy for long-term disability, right? So I need to be strategic with products that might get me covered, which is a topic that maybe we can cover later on. But I look at things like, what else does the contract provide? So most insurance companies offer a future income option, something whereas if I prove that my, my income has increased over time, which hopefully it does, we can increase coverage without providing that medical evidence. Well, that's hugely advantageous. So yeah. when I look at young couples, the maximum amount of coverage might only be $2,500 a month after tax. But if we can scale it up by another 8,000 over the course of the contract without evidence, these are very strategic yeah. tools that, and in my view, if you have a client relationship and you manage their money, when their income goes up in two years and you see the tax return, they've got a new job and they their, their earning is up 40%, you want to have the tool in your tool belt to say, hey, we're going to go increase. Yeah. What else are you doing during your annual review? Well, not only that, I mean, like having to do a full medical underwrite for every small incremental increase, like talk about a massive pain. But yeah, I mean, like in these cases, let's use the example of that 40 year old, if he had a heart attack and he's 40 years old and he had a disability plan with an FIO, a future income option, that person would still receive a letter saying, do you want to increase your coverage without medical evidence? And they couldn't deny him. They couldn't deny him. Whereas if he wanted one now, good luck. I don't know what the disability no. companies would say to him. Probably not. Not until he's been, that said, I mean, depends on the severity and how long it's been clear, but still, nevertheless, it is, it is difficult. So yeah, there's, there's lots of little benefits. We'll come back to that. But the core benefit, I mean, pretty straightforward, you become disabled, you're disabled for X number of days, it will pay you as long as you're disabled, and then it will stop at some point in the future, usually age 65 or depends on the, the termination date. But let's talk about what constitutes a disability. And this can be different depending on the, the term for definition of disability. So talk about the three different levels of disability coverage and what each of them like track to essentially. Yeah, yeah, the three definitions. So this is you know, the best way to introduce this is when you talk about people who have plans with their employers, which which isn't everybody, by the way. I mean, no. not everybody gets the, gets the benefit of guaranteed issue coverage. So if you claim one of those plans, the definition for the first two years is, is your regular occupation, which is are you able to do the duties of your regular job for your training and skills? But after two years, there's a big difference in the definition where it changes to this thing called any occupation, where essentially if, if they feel, you know, by working with your doctor, certainly reading reports, that you're capable of doing any job, which is including but not limited to the greeter at Walmart, and it doesn't even mean they're hiring. They yep. can take you off the claim. Now, I will say I have seen more situations where the, the group plan continues to pay okay, than mm -hmm. I have seen people get kicked off. But that's how yeah, they the old story of like you would 
yeah, the old story of like, well, if you can flip burgers at McDonald's, guess what? You're off the plan. I don't think I've ever seen that, quite honestly. I know. I, you know, I'll tell you, I've been involved in a couple of claims in that situation. And I wouldn't say like they're uh, emotionally tied to it. I just think there's more of a spirit to the deal than that maybe is advertised, you know, negative press sell, right? Those stories stories sell. Absolutely. And and to be clear, those plans typically have about a two year range before it drops off, right? Yeah, two year regular rock until it drops off. So yeah, and and interesting, if I may, sorry, the reason for that two year, which is interesting to note, is that statistically, if you're disabled for a period of of, of two years, the odds of you ever going back drop like a rock. Like, honestly, you're probably, if you're a regular rock for two years and you've been disabled for two years, there's a very, very, very good chance that any AUK will cover you. But imagine the cost you like if, if you didn't have that, I don't want to call it a stop loss because it's not a loss, but there's a, there's a line in the sand where employers and insurance companies can throw their hands up. That keeps this stuff affordable for the masses. The one last thing I'll say about the group stuff before I move on to regular occupation. When you look at the group benefits booklets, we got to find out is the employer paying the premiums or not? Because when the employer's paying point. it, he off, often it's taxable. And and people don't know these things. And I think it's our job to just to identify. Well, I've so. debated HR people who insisted that they wanted the employer to pay for it. I'm just oh, like, I hold, they don't. hold on. Like, no. yeah, like, like, let's let's talk about what actually happened. Like, I know you're worried about your dollar today. You're not looking enough at the tens of dollars tomorrow if this happens to you. And sometimes you just got to, you spell the math and sometimes they don't listen. But I, I yeah, it's, it's crazy. So to be clear, if the, it's a very simple formula. If it's being paid for by the employer, which means you're not paying for it, it's a taxable benefit. Absolutely. If it's not being paid for by the employer and you're paying for it, it is a tax-free benefit. And there is no little bit pregnant on this. Your employer pays a single dollar. It's taxable. End of story. Yep. Yeah. And, and I get that for entry-level employees who might be making $30,000 a year, the taxable portion is so low relative to their income that it's probably not attracting much tax. But either way, moving on to the regular occupation, this is the, the definition that we, we tend to lean on. Using the physician example is probably the best one. If you're a GP or a family doctor, you'd probably use the regular occupation definition like most professionals. And if you can't do the duties of being a family doctor, it pays you until you're 65. The own occupation definition, and this is really where we got to be cautious about who we add it to. I've yes. seen a lot of family doctors who have an own occupation rider, so the additional costs onto their contract, but I can't imagine a circumstance where they're able to claim. Like, what is yeah, it? So, what's the di- so let's talk about the own occupation. What's the difference between own oc and regular oc first? Because so I, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, own occupation is very specific. So you're not able to do the specific duties of your own occupation. So a great that example. That one specific job. It's yeah. Surgery. So you're a neurosurgeon, yeah. right? So you're really good at neurosurgery, and maybe you also play hockey, right? And maybe after several years of playing men's league hockey, you start getting a little bit of the shakes in, the, in those hands, right? Yeah. You can claim on the fact that I can't do neurosurgery, but I'm not permanently disabled. The own occupation definition allows payment of the insurance amount because you can't do surgery, but it's not saying you can't go get a job teaching surgery. Yeah. Or be a GP. Or be a GP or do the yeah. rounds in the, in the nursing homes or whatever it might be. But a cautionary tale, when you do a review of an insurance policy, sometimes you see these own occupation writers added, but they're really not applicable. I mean, I just don't know yeah. what it's about my job that's so own, so specific that I can't. Yeah, because regular occupation means basically something similar that you were reasonably trained for, right? So exactly. you could stop doing insurance and you could, again, you could teach insurance, right? So on a regular occupation, if you went from doing what you're doing today to teaching it, you would not basically get a benefit. And I'll give you a you know, real life example, a client, a personal friend of mine, chiropractor, for years, developed severe version of carpal tunnel syndrome and something else with his shoulder, physically could not adjust people, could not do anything there. He has an own occupation policy 
that thing has been paying him for the better part of eight or nine years now. And now he's gone out, re-educated himself and become a shropist, right? Like, you know, he's, yeah, exactly. So he's, he's doing, he's doing just fine. And he was able to afford the luck, you know, he's able to support his family through the period of re-education because of this. And again, I think to your, in my opinion, it's one of these things where if you have a very narrowly defined job, that if you lose that job, you're not going to make the same kind of money. Onoc makes a lot of sense. Oh yeah. So there's two more points I want to make on disability and I'll say them first in case we get sure. on a tangent. The first one is talking about association association coverages for a lot of professionals. And yes. the second one, I don't want to forget talking about return of premium. So I think that's a key point. Oh yeah. We'll go there. <laughs> so let's just talk really briefly about association. And this is really, really important. It's like most things in life, follow the money, right? Yes. And, find yourself where the interest of the advisor is. So I'll just use the Ontario Medical Association as an example. And this holds true with the CPA and some others. When you look at long-term disability insurance with the OMA, I could position it as a group association policy. It's not as good. What happens if the price goes up? What happens if they decide to cancel? I can be the fear monger, but ultimately, if you looked at the underlying contract itself, it's always been a very strong contract. And Mm -hmm. the price for the OMA plan is often 60% less than the price for a plan that I can sell that I get paid for. So my interests are aligned with selling the individual policy and not the OMA plan for that example. Now, I'm not saying one is, I'm not saying the OMA plan is a better contract, you know, front to back, but the value is there. And I think it's our job to show it. I also think it provides a unique opportunity for us to say two things. One, maybe we do one of each. At the time of claim, yeah. we have two companies adjudicating a claim that can be very helpful playing one off the other. And second, when you have situations where people have finite dollars for premium, what if they have the decision to say, so you're saying I can save my money with my association plan, which is 90% or 85% of the plan of the individual plan, and now they can go up by that critical illness insurance that they need, right? So I think it's really important. This is a lot of information. You don't do it all in one meeting, but we need to be equipped to help people make their, those choices. And here's the other thing, too. I think we've, we've been kind of beating around without really talking about it, is that life insurance is straightforward in a lot of ways. You're dead, you're dead. You know, unless you're like some, you know, guy, unless, unless you're some guy who basically started a cryptocurrency exchange that basically somehow disappeared, died while on vacation in India and may or may, and the cryptocurrency is all missing. And you may or may not be alive in Costa Verde or wherever else, like, Unless you're that, you're dead, right? Like, and and like, so it's like, okay, here it is, right? And like, whereas when it comes to living benefits, there are nuances to these contracts. There are real tangible differences to these contracts. So yeah. if you're dealing with someone who's basically going to put in place a disability policy, they better understand not just what's in that policy, but what's out there in the marketplace and how it applies to that specific, basically, risk that you have at the trivial to your job. So like I said, there's a, there's a fair degree of comp- complexity. And it's also reflecting the fact that this is also a lot harder to underwrite than life insurance, right? Like this is, it looks expensive on the surface, even though not having it's far more expensive, but it's, you know, there's a lot more with life insurance. It's like, oh, you're approved, declined or rated yeah. with disability. It's like, oh yeah, you, we're going to cover you except for this thing. Like your first knee surgery. If you were looking for coverage after your first knee surgery, it's like, that's fine, Brian, we'll take you except for that knee. So you, you have quite the reputation for exposing the interests of advisors. I know that we know that. And, and, uh, and when, yes. So my next comment, I think you're going to appreciate because this is for a person who does you know, insurance as often as I do. It's my sole occupation, how I generate revenue. When I look at the reason why living benefits are not sold, the answer is actually exceptionally simple. And I share this with, mm. with clients. It is really, really easy. When you have a client or a customer who has finite dollars, let's just say $300 a month, like a number, it is really, really easy to sell living and dying, okay? It is very, very easy to position after we get over the hurdle of death, here's term and here's permanent. 
And we should all want permanent life insurance, but we all don't need it. And I think if you have $300 to sell something, you know, you have a budget to work with. It is really easy to say, well, tell you what, let me give you some of that good stuff. Pack on some of that cheap stuff because I'm getting my 300 bucks a month and I can, just, I can establish value as an insurance expert. Now, that might be true. And that particular advisor's skill set and interest might be in that client, but their skills are lacking. Because to me, the reason why you only do life is because it's easier to get the 300 bucks of which we get paid on. What's hard, what's hard is talking about the stuff we're talking about and positioning it appropriately and educating and taking the time and not to mention the underwriting efforts of doing these things. Substantially harder. $300 budget, the same relative commission and revenue for me, which one's easier? And that is- that's Life is so much easier. Life is so much easier. And like, and people know what it is, right? They don't necessarily question it, right? They, they think that they get married, they buy a house, they, you know, they have a kid and they think to, you know, I need life insurance. No one stops. A lot of people just assume like disability, like, oh, my employer is going to take care of that or the government's going to take care of that, whatever. They don't get educated on it. And what you're saying, and again, thank you for, you know, I expose the interest of advisors to all the time. The, the reality is, is that when it's supported by the evidence. Now, I haven't seen this data in a little while, but last I saw was probably about six years ago. And it was a statistic on the number of advisors who had insurance licensed advisors who had sold the life insurance policy. I took that, took that statistic of like, how many have sold a policy in the last year? Okay, great. Now let's survey them. How many of them have sold a critical illness policy in the last year? And that number goes from all the people who sold life insurance policy in 12 months down to 10% of the population. When you look at how many people of that group had sold a disability policy, that number dropped to somewhere around six, right? So that is utterly frightening as to think as to how many people are out there that do not have coverage, have an insurance advisor, feel that they are taken care of and are absolutely just exposed beyond belief because yeah, you covered the cheaper, bigger costs. And you know, what's also easier about life insurance is that you pay me 300 a month and maybe that gives you 2 million. You give me 300 a month for disability and that number is going to look something like 2000 a month for benefit, right? But I actually think it's one of the things I always make sure people are informed of when we talk about disability is, okay, 2000 a month, this much between now and the day it ends, right? And that number gets smaller every month. But, you know, it takes for a young person, it could take that 2000, like I'm paying 300 for 2000, seems like a bad trade off. No, no, you're paying 300 for 3 million, yep. which is going to diminish. But that's how much you stand to lose. That is a much more powerful conversation, but these conversations are not being had, unfortunately. So if, if you want, and you might cut this from your podcast, but there's a story sometimes I'm shared, depending on the client relationship I have with people. Oh, you, you, you always have you always have the following objection. It's often from men. I'm not going to get sick. I can't imagine a situation where I don't show up to work and do whatever it is that I do. And they're not yeah. wrong because you know, we're, not, we're not so old to not feel invincible but we're getting old enough that we feel some aches and pain. So the story I kind of share, it's, it's sort of a funny one, but it makes sense. And, and let me position this. Jason's been married for a long time, lots of beautiful kids, great business. And your wife finds a better looking, younger, richer Jason. You know, now all of a sudden- Oh, that can't happen. I'm kidding. Well, well, you know, younger, I, younger. I, you know, people don't know- They're looking, yes, okay, fine. This is a Zoom call, so trust me, I can tell you it's possible. Um, <laughs> but let it play this out. So that's marital situation that, you know, maybe- not doing so well. Maybe it turns out that Jason only gets to see his children once a month 
And that might turn into Jason having a more difficult time getting to work every day. He's a bit depressed and finds yeah. himself at the bar having a few pops. That leads into depression and, and alcoholism yeah. and whatever it might be. That's a, that's the, the, the disability. That, yeah. that's, we're not talking about you went to hockey and, and broke your elbow. Like this is which happens, which happens. But I think a story like that, as silly as it is, I think you and others can visualize a story or a person in your head where it's happened. Yeah. I'll add a couple of stories of that. So, so you're absolutely right. And I would say that people don't stop to realize the fact, and they always think about, like I said, physical labor being the cause of disability when something like 30 to 40% of all claims are mental nervous disorders, right? And that includes something as simple as depression. And I mean, come on, like who of us hasn't had a bad moment in their life or bad time in their life where, you know, we had, you know, maybe we got over, but we had some form of moderate depression that would probably be maybe clinically recognized, who knows, right? The other, you know, you might made the point about hockey and the elbow. Like there's actually a well-known case in Toronto of a senior executive at a major financial firm who was playing pickup hockey and non-contact had his feet accidentally taken out from behind him because a guy was dragging a stick and he had a concussion to the degree that he never went back to work. And the one, and I'll share one actually funny story. There was someone who basically said, I'm never going to get disabled. You know, you're, you're full of crap. I'm like, wow, your power of, I was not aware that you were able to see into the future. <laughs> Do me a favor. What stock should I buy today? And they just looked at me. It's like, okay, your point's taken. Just acknowledge it's possible. That's the first thing. Acknowledge it's possible. I know it's like all deal. You know, it's it's funny. It's I find it's actually harder for people to deal with their own morbidity as a possibility than it is for them to deal with their own mortality as a possibility. Because we all grow up knowing we're going to die one day. We don't all grow up thinking we're going to not be able to work one day. So I know you're the host, but I'm going to put a question to you. Okay. What is your philosophy for return of premium on long-term disability and or critical illness insurance? So critical illness insurance. Let's take a step back. Let's explain the concept. Return of premium is basically a way of, quote unquote, getting rewarded for staying healthy. So you basically on every anniversary, let's call it year, usually around eighth year, you'll receive a portion of what you put into that policy back. Let's call it 50%, which is in some of it. And this is a, exactly. So you can add on this benefit at a cost, which is not a small sum. Now, interestingly enough, so one of two, you have one of two possible outcomes. You either become disabled, in which case the amount you put in relative to what you get out of it is enormous. Like the sorry, the amount you get out of it versus what you get out of it is enormous. So if you become disabled for the rest of your life, who cares what that return of premium costs, even if you didn't use it? Because the, the ROI is enormous. If you stay healthy, if you look at what the internal rate of return is pre-tax on basically getting back 50, get, what, what it costs for that incremental amount versus 50% of the total premium, you will typically find that that number approaches 8%. So it's not a guaranteed eight percent it is a guaranteed eight percent if you stay healthy and that is again after tax because it's tax-free so if you're in a situation whereby you're a, you're in a high marginal tax rate then that's the equivalent of you making almost 16 percent. so i think from a it's an odd odd thing that we have an incredible investment opportunity buried within a disability plan so we have this unique opportunity to buy this incredibly rate of, incredible rate of return product that there is a possibility we get zero out of it but if we get zero out of it it's because we've gotten more than we would have anyway from the disability benefits. So I personally love it. But again, here's the thing. If you're ready, I think it's secondary to all your risk needs. So if there's only enough money to get you the life insurance, the disability, and the critical illness you need, and you can't pay for the ROI, or sorry, ROP, then you go without it. But if you can, it is a great opportunity. Critical illness, I've looked at the numbers. I have to look at it again because it depends. I've looked at this recently. Last I saw, correct me if I'm wrong, most of these require you to terminate your policy at the end of the at the end of the period, do they not? Usually, yeah, you just use the uh, definition of 100% of return of premium in 15 years or any year thereafter, yeah. or at age 75. Or, yeah, but you have to terminate coverage, right? Yeah. So those are less appealing to me. 
because you're giving up coverage at the time that you're probably the probability goes up that you're going to actually have it. So I actually previously, like oh, a long time ago, saw one of these like first generation critical loss policies that were incredible. Literally, it was you would get I think it was 75% refund of all premiums every 10 years, and the coverage continued. If yeah. that existed today, incredible. I would sell it, I would sell it nonstop. Like that is fantastic because the ROI on that is incredible. So I mean it's it's an interesting thing because it's like you know, we talk about insurance from a risk standpoint first. This is marrying a return, investment return option on top of it. So, so it's, it, let me just your thoughts. Back. So so yeah, means, uh, if we exclude the the more complicated stuff for business owners split dollar critical limits, exclude that. Just put that to the side. That's a conversation. That's a different story. And that's actually that's actually mispriced, but we can go back to that. Yeah, we go that's right. So here's an easy way that I look at things. And to me, it makes it very simple for consumers of their life. We need coverage. We need to protect our family. We want to return a premium. I have yet to meet a person who owns a return of premium contract when they get that check every eight years. They are celebrating the you know, $7,000 yep. check they got from the insurance company. I have yet to see a person who's got their, got to age 65, who canceled the policy, they got their 300 grand, it's cash, it's infused into their retirement savings or whatever. They're never sad or mad. I look in the very simple basis of wants and needs. If I'm telling you, you need a million dollars of life insurance coverage, you need a fully funded long-term disability plan, and you need some critical illness, and I have $500 a month, don't do a reduced amount of coverage because you want your money back. Because if you go down in a month or a year or five years, yeah, it's, you're not getting what you need. And exactly. I, I find when you separate wants and needs, it becomes very clear what the right choice is. Um, 100%. The primary reason we're doing this is protection. The sweetener on top of it, yeah. that's that's nice. Yeah. And, and the return of premium for critical illness insurance, I think fits exceptionally well. Again, excluding the advanced tax stuff, you know, a split dollar. If you're a physician, for example, or any business owner who has accumulated a, a lot of cash in the company, you're not very, you're risk adverse, you're, you're maybe battling the passive tax issue, whatever it might be, it's quasi cash. You know, Jim, $70,000 yep. a year into a $2 million critical illness policy with return of premium. And if you don't use it in 15 years, which by the way, you likely won't, you don't need the premium, you don't need the money. Yep. If you well, get it, let's go over those stats. Let's go over those stats. The odds of you needing a, having a critical illness pre-age, I believe it was 75 as a number, is roughly about 50%. In fact, in the odds of two members of a couple having at least one member have a critical illness, they're about 75%. And the way I like to say that is if you go to dinner with three other couples in your wife, you and your spouse go to dinner with three other couples, statistically, three of those four couples will experience a critical illness event before age 75. So the numbers are pretty staggering. Yeah, but yes, you're right. It won't. It's less likely to happen when you're younger, but if it does, it's more devastating. Well, it is. And I'll tell you, where I think most people in my business, I wish their mindset was, is that when you buy an insurance policy, you're buying a 20 to 50 year commitment to a client. So yep. you have to ask yourself, your litmus test is your five-year phone call, your 10-year phone call, and your 20-year phone call. Because in five years, if I sold $100,000 of ROP to Jason, instead of a yep. million dollars a 10-year term, when I knew you needed the term, yep. well, the phone call is, you're calling me. You're not dead. You're sick. Yep. And I tell you, sir, remember how I gave you the 100 grand, but you could have had a million for the same price? Whoops. You know, we really need to... We need to ask ourselves, well, but, what benefit, what, what's that phone call feel like? And what's it look like? Yeah. You ask yourself that question because you're the one receiving it. Yep. I mean, honestly, there, there are so two things. First off, I mean, we know what the reason is. It's because of the incentives. They're all front-end loaded compensation. So the compensation model is not one of stewardship, unfortunately, which I would love to see that change because you'll see less churning. You'll see more You'll see more maintenance. And suddenly these clients that no one calls because they're just policies sold 20, 30 years ago become valuable because if you're servicing the, the that orphan client, you're actually going to get compensated for it. The entire, you know, how do you get a feel in if you get that phone call? 
I kid you not. I literally, and I, unfortunately, I will say this much. Of all the clients I have, the ones who listen to me the least, it's a, it's a two-rank order. Pa- a family listens to me the least by far, but that's everybody. And then friends are the ones who are second because they were like, they, they, you know, like, oh, I'll have you watched. They're just not the same level of commitment to the process, right? And I've literally said to people like, they're like, yeah, you know, I don't want to get to this. I'm like, listen, I don't want to have to call your wife. Doctor, something's happened to you. And basically hand over a check that is a fraction of what it should be, knowing it's putting them in a terrible position. Like for love, as your friend, don't put me in that position. Like don't put your spouse, don't put your your family in that position. Don't put me in that position. Like that is that is terrible. These are people that have been a lot a large part of my life, but they they're the ones that some of them unfortunately are stubborn about this. What you need to do. So the shame of this is the shame like you can hear you and I have a certain level of passion and compassion to people that we work with. And we think a lot about this. I'm in the business where I work with advisors. So the advisors that I work with have decided I am not an expert in this. I, I'd rather have an expert help my clients in a collaborative environment. And for the amount of advisors that pick up the phone and call me for me to do this work, there are 10 more that say the following. They say, my clients don't need insurance. Oh, God. And How do you know? Like, what was your needs analysis proving well, that, quite I, honestly? I'll you, and I'll tell you, you're as probably uh, more into academia than anybody that I know. And there's a lot of really smart people, a lot of letters after their names who sound really stupid. And it, I hear it often and it's frustrating for people in my shoes, but it's, it's nice to hear that you're taking in, you're thinking about this stuff in a way that is compassionate because you got to think about, I just did your plan. Like what if stuff happens? It's, it's a real life version of a Monte Carlo analysis. Like if mm-hmm. something bad happens, I'm going to take the phone call and have I run those numbers or have I at least told you about it? And if yeah. I've told you about it, and you don't do it, I sleep better at night. I don't feel bad. I don't feel guilty at all. If you don't do it, that's not, that's a different decision than doing the math. Agreed. Agreed. So we've done a pretty good job of covering the gamut here of, of need and base coverage. The reality is, is that if your insurance agent is not speaking to you about basically living benefits, get someone who is going to, because frankly, again, the statistics are, you're actually far more likely to become disabled or to have a critical illness, then you are to die at an early age. But we all absolutely see, well, most of us see the need for life insurance, but the living benefits is a much bigger risk. So Brian, before we sign off, any last thoughts or any last words? No, actually, I think more than anything, I'm sitting here and I'm enjoying this conversation. And I mean that maybe because I'm enthusiastic about what I do. And I find I'm often the one being asked to stand in front of people and, and sell them this idea. And it's very frustrating and time consuming and energy consuming. So this is enjoyable. This platform can be used to help tear down the walls for advisors yeah. and clients. I just think yeah. what you're doing is great and, and I'll participate Thank whenever you ask. Yeah, I mean, we did a good job. I think one of the things I do like about what we did was that we we spent a lot of time not getting into product detail because frankly, that's secondary, right? Like the, the, the broad strokes are the important part. Like it does X in, in Y scenario, but really the why you need this, why it's important to you and your loved ones, how it's going to protect you and your family. That's the reason we do it. Like the other stuff is just the how. So Brian, before we sign off, where can people find you? Just Google me. My name is Brian Laundry. My, uh, I, whenever I go to conferences, I just tell people to call me Laundry because it's easy to remember. You can Google me. My website, brianlaundry.ca. And yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. So that was this week's episode of Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Thank you again for taking the time. And I thank Brian for taking the time to come in and discuss uh, two very, very important forms of coverage. And we did touch upon long-term care insurance in this episode, but I am planning on bringing in somebody who is the definitive expert in the space. So keep an ear out for that one in the future. As always, this is Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners, and I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Thank you and take care. 
This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.